Now, the, the thing that kind of got me thinking about this passage this week was a quote that I remember reading in the Christian leadership guru, John Maxwell's book, The 21 Indistinguishable Qualities of a Leader. There really are 21. Uh, 21 Indistinguishable Qualities. He says, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. You know, I think that's true. Uh, nations, cities, businesses, nonprofit organizations, churches, families, they all depend on the quality of their leaders. Healthy leaders lead those things to health. Unhealthy, disordered leaders make a mess of things really quick, as we all have experienced in various avenues. You ever work for an incompetent boss? It's the worst. Everything rises and falls on leadership. But that really pushes a question beyond itself. Okay, if everything rises and falls on leadership, what makes a good leader? What makes a good leader? President Truman said, A leader is a person who has the ability to get others to do what they don't want to do and like it. Make people do what they don't want to do and like it. Tom Bolsinger, a leadership guy out of California, says, Leadership is taking people where they need to go and yet resist going. So the question is, if everything rises and falls on leadership, and if leadership is leading people to do things they really don't want to do and end up liking it, and go places they didn't want to go and end up there, how do you accomplish it? How do you compel people as a leader to change. Leaders do this in different ways. Military leaders compel people to do things they want, don't want to do at the point of a sword or at the end of a gun. Do it or else. That's leadership, in a sense. Political leaders influence us by changing laws. They make us do things differently than we did before. Changing the law, changing the legal environment, and then getting back to the end of a gun. If you don't follow the law, you're going to jail. Thought leaders influence us by presenting alternate ways of thinking, or alternate ways of doing things, and then persuading us that their way is better than ours. And there are conferences and books published for pastors that in various ways make use of those tactics, leading people by force or by law, or by persuasion. But I'm convinced, if we're going to be God's people in a broken world, our leaders have to be different than the leaders out there. Our leaders must be different than generals, and CEOs, and politicians, and influencers on the gram. That's Instagram, if you didn't know that. we got to be different. Leaders in the church have to be different. Are you with me? Okay. Maybe I can persuade you and take you places you never thought you wanted to go and like it. But the real question is, what kind of leaders do God's people need? What kind of leaders do we need? And we're going to see that this morning as we continue our series here in verses 5 through 9. Paul lays it out pretty clearly. He says, rather than evaluating and selecting our leaders based on their skill or their competency, or their track record, or their experience. Not their smarts, 
not their political maneuvering abilities. He says we need to pray for and strive to be leaders with blameless character and biblical convictions. So let's, let's get to the Word and let's see what God has to say about it. This is what he says in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is, the hus- if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able to exhort in sound doctrine and also to refute those who contradict. Here in verse 5, Paul begins the body of his letter to Titus. If you weren't here last week, we saw his introduction. He introduced himself as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent out into the world to preach. And by preaching, to bring the chosen of God to faith, to establish in him a knowledge of truth that leads to godliness, and to give them hope and eternal life. And so this is Paul's goal. He's trying to help Titus understand his task. And in verse 5, he really gets down to the details. Why did I leave you behind on Crete? And he says it in black and white, that he left him to set in order what remains. The Apostle Paul had a pretty standard method of ministry. He would go into a new place and visit first the Jewish synagogue where he would preach Jesus as the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And if and when the Jews rejected the message, then Paul would go to the nearest Gentile meeting place, whether it was the market or he goes to a public laundry place where the women gather, and he starts preaching about Jesus. And pretty soon, as people start to respond in faith, the chosen of God are brought to faith, begin to have a knowledge of the truth that would lead him to godliness and a hope in eternal life, he begins to collect them into a group called a church, usually meeting in someone's home, whoever had a big enough house to hold everybody. And then he would move on to the next place. But apparently, whatever circumstances had brought him and Titus to Crete had prevented him from fulfilling his task. Crete is a pretty big place, like 3,300 square miles. A lot of cities, and in the first century, you didn't have easy transportation. There's no interstate highway system or uh, railway or airplanes or anything. So these cities that are kind of far apart are pretty disconnected. And Paul had apparently gone through each of those towns preaching, and people had come to faith. But because he felt a burden by God to go find those chosen by him in some other place, he left. And he left Titus behind to finish the work, put into order what remains. And so apparently, Paul had preached the gospel in Crete. People had responded in faith and had been collected into a church. But the task was left unfinished. Something was left undone. The church was disordered and incomplete until there were godly leaders in place. This is mind-blowing to me, and not just because I get the privilege and honor of serving as a pastor of one of these churches, but God doesn't intend for His people to be shepherdless. Of course, Jesus is the good shepherd, but every local congregation needs leadership. 
And so Paul left Titus behind to set in order what remains by appointing elders in every city. This word elders is the Greek word presbyteros. We get our English word Presbyterian from it. And it can either describe somebody who's attained, you'll like how I put this, to an elderly age. They've attained to an elderly age. They've progressed through their years to now they are an elder. They're elderly. But it also has another meaning. An elder, a presbyteros, is a leader of the community who performs various functions. He's a leader. And this word, elder, gets used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, it'll be real familiar to you when Moses delivered God's instructions to the Israelites in Egypt on the first Passover. He called together a specific group of people. Exodus 12.21 says, Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. Also, when King David was anointed king and the tribes of Israel submitted to him, we're going to read it in our Bible reading plan this week in 2 Samuel 5, the word says that all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and then they anointed David king over Israel. The elders of Israel, at least in those two passages, and you can trace it out on your own and see that this is the case almost every time, the elders of Israel were their recognized leaders. Men set apart to teach and represent and lead the people. Ben Merkel, a scholar teaches at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina, says that there are 180 times in the Old Testament where the word elder is used. And two-thirds of the time, it refers to a leader in the community without any regard to their age. So for us, we hear this word elder, and we typically think of those who are older than us. And that's true. Many times, leaders in the church are older. But that's not always the case. That the word elder, presbyteros, is not just about age, but about role. Somebody who has been set apart and identified as a leader of a group. In the New Testament, the words continued to be used that way. And the gospel writers, and even in the book of Acts, we hear about the elders of Israel. This time, not in the most... Uh, uh, congratulatory terms. They're the people who rejected Jesus, the, the scribes and elders. But in Acts 11.30, an interesting thing happens. That what was first recognized as the leaders of the people of Israel is transformed. And in Acts 11, the church in Syrian Antioch takes up a love offering to donate to the saints in Jerusalem who are experiencing a famine. And they appointed from their group two men. Saul and Barnabas to take the money. And they instructed them to go to the elders in Jerusalem. Acts 11.30. That all of a sudden something happens. The elders of the people of Israel is transformed to the elders in a church. A recognized group of leaders. Look with me in Acts chapter 14. In verse 21. Paul and Barnabas are again traveling, but this time they're on a missionary journey. And in verse 20, they go to a city called Derby. And in Acts 14, 21, Luke tells us that after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, 
Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And get this in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So I want you to have a clear picture in your mind of Paul's missionary strategy. He goes into a place where the gospel of Jesus has never been heard. He preaches, and those appointed by God to eternal life are saved. And he collects them into a group, and he picks from among them some men to lead. Elders. What happened on Crete is that he was pushed away by the need, and so he left Titus behind to finish the task, to put into order what remains. And because Paul knew that everything rises and falls on leadership, he wanted to make sure that the men Titus selected weren't just the good old boys, the guys who had sway and influence in the community, the guys who could spin a good yarn or get people to follow. They had to be made of the right stuff. And so he gave him detailed instructions on what these men were supposed to be all about. And y'all, I wish that he had given us a detailed job description of what these elders were supposed to do. But he doesn't. You know, in our world, you're going to get hired for a job. You want to know what the responsibilities are going to be. How am I going to be evaluated, whether I'm a success or a failure? See, the world selects and hires leaders based on their ability to turn a profit their ability to get things done. Can they take us where we want to go? In other words, the world selects leaders based on their competency. How competent are they at doing the job assigned? And because of that, many times leaders are selected who are very good at what they do, but they're huge jerks. Right? You, you only have to look at some of the major companies. One, a perfect example, probably all of us influenced in one way or another by the company Apple. And the great leader, Steve Jobs, who gave to us the terrible gift of an iPhone. Could you, could you imagine if it had never been invented, how much better our world would be? Man, it would have been awesome. But you have Steve Jobs to thank for that. And by all accounts, Steve Jobs is a leadership whiz. Apple was failing, was going under, and he came in and saved the day. But do you know how people felt about him? He was an oppressive perfectionist a misogynist, a terrible person. But man, was he a leader. Turned Apple into one of the most profitable companies in the world. They got a pile of cash that you wouldn't imagine. The government would die to have Apple's cash. He's a great leader, right? But that's not the way the church is supposed to select leaders. You've got to put up with them because, hey, he's one of those type A personalities. you just got to take the bad with the good. After all, he's a great leader. But that's not what Paul says. In the church, leaders aren't selected for what they can do, but for who they are. And that's what we see. When Paul starts to identify not a job description, but the character qualities of leaders the church needs, he begins by identifying their blameless character. Their blameless character. He says, if any man is above reproach. And that makes me shake in my shoes. I mean, that's an impossible standard, isn't it? I mean, not just for a kid from Alabama who grew up in a preacher's house. What about the terrible Cretans that Paul calls liars and filthy gluttons and beasts? How was Titus ever going to find a man among them who was above reproach, who lived up to this standard? Well, thankfully, 
God's not looking for perfect people to lead. Not looking for sinless people to lead. He's just looking for faithful people who will lead. What Paul is talking about when he talks about being above reproach is not a man who's sinless, but a man whose life is aimed in one clear direction. Towards godliness. And it's starting to show everywhere. Paul lays out virtues, nine, uh, actually eleven, different virtues that identify one of these elders, but he doesn't get there first, and this is difficult. The blameless character Paul's talking about is not abstract, like, is he just? Well, who's to say? How do you define just? But he asks, is he blameless in his family life? He says, if any man's above reproach, the husband of one wife, literally the Greek, a one-woman man. When Paul starts talking about the men who are supposed to lead the church, what he's looking for are men who are faithful to their wives. Of course, in the first century, polygamy was far more common than it is today. But uh, this isn't what's in the back of Paul's mind. Paul's mainly concerned about marital fidelity. Does this man stick to his wife, or is he out running around town? It's not just his wife. It says, does he have children who believe? Or your Bible may say, does he have faithful children? And this is a challenge because, of course, children are their own people, left to make their own decisions about following Christ and pursuing a life that's honoring to him. How could we ever hold a man accountable for his kid's behavior? That's exactly what Paul does. He says, do they have children who believe? And he defines what he's talking about. He says, are they open to the charge of dissipation or rebellion? Dissipation is a wonderful Bible word. We don't ever accuse anybody of dissipation today. We might get close. We say, hey, they're, they live a pretty wild life. He's a wild man. You know, and that's what he means. The same word is used to describe the life of the prodigal son who asks his father for inheritance and goes blows it all on gambling and parties. That's dissipation. Does a man who loves the Lord, who's above reproach, does he have children who are out living wild and rebellious lives? Or are his Kids pretty much under control. This is pretty similar to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He'd left Timothy in Ephesus to basically do the same thing that Titus was doing in Crete. And he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 4 that an elder must be a man who manages his own household well. So you get the idea. The kind of leader God's people's needs are, are not first people who can really get things done. But it's a man who has a blameless character in the way he relates to his family. And here's why I think this is Paul's first thought. Is that our sanctification, our growth in godliness and Christ-likeness, is kind of easy to fake when we're around people for an hour or two every week. We can put on a happy face. We can have all the right answers. We can, you know, say, hey, everything's going well. But it's a lot harder to put on a mask around your family. Your family sees you at your worst when you wake up in the morning before you've had breakfast or coffee. They know what you're like when your hair's not fixed, you know? And it's hard to hide from your family what you're all about. A man who were up here preaching the gospel to a church in Crete, but whose kids were out running around doing all kind of crazy stuff and getting into trouble, starts to raise a few red flags. What's really going on at this man's home? Does he practice what he preaches? And so Paul says to Titus, go around looking for men whose sanctification is obvious. 
Not when they're around church people on Sunday, but when they're at their worst, around their family, the people who know them best, what are they like? But I also think that Paul brings up the family life first because the elder's task in the church is a lot like the task of a father in the home. You know, we got a father, fatherlessness crisis in America. I don't know if you know that. We'll maybe talk about that in a second. But what Paul says in verse 7 of, of Titus is, "...the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward." So he comes back to this idea, and he introduces a new word. Before he was talking about elders, presbyteroi. Now he's talking about overseers, episcopoi. And we get our word episcopal from it. But these overseers are elders. He uses the terms interchangeably. And if an elder is uh, describing a person's role or title, overseer describes their function. The episcopoi in the ancient world were these tr almost like trustees function today in our organizations. They're invested with authority to make sure everything runs smoothly in the organization. They oversee things and move things along. And Paul says these elders are, are overseers who are supposed to be above reproach as stewards in God's house. And a steward was a manager who oversaw the day-in and day-out workings of what happened in an ancient household. All the olive oil that had to get sold and procured, all the things that were happening. A wealthy landowner would entrust it to a slave called a manager or a steward. Jesus often talked about them in his parables. that They were entrusted with a certain amount of money to invest while the master was away or to oversee the master's business while the master was away. And Paul says that these pastors, these elders, are overseers, God's stewards. They're managing the household well. And he says to Timothy earlier in 1 Timothy 3 that if a man can't manage his own household, how can he ever manage the household of God? So when Titus is looking at all these churches, he's looking for men who are faithful at home, who are blameless in the way they interact with their families. But beyond that, he gets to their personal life. And here we get to the 11 virtues. And we're going to run through these quickly because they're pretty self-explanatory. In verses 7 and 8, he identifies five negative traits that can't be present in an elder's life and six positive traits that should be. First, he says that an elder can't be self-willed or arrogant. Uh, arrogance, y'all don't know any arrogant people, do you? Don't look at the person you're sitting next to. All right. now, arrogance is this attitude. We all can see it from a mile away. A person who thinks they're always right. Of course, arrogance sabotages relationships and families. But man, it's pro I've, I've served for some, with some. I've been one. Man, it's a heavy burden to have an arrogant pastor. Pastors aren't always right, are they? Of course not. So Titus is supposed to be on the lookout for men who aren't self-willed, who aren't willing to violate God's command to prove that they are right. He's also looking for men who aren't quick-tempered, inclined to anger, he means. That as soon as something happens, psh, they blow up. They lose their cool under pressure. He's looking for men who aren't addicted to wine, aren't heavy drinkers, men who aren't pugnacious, looking for a fight, a bully, men who aren't fond of sordid gain or greedy for money. Can you find that in the world? I mean, these are some pretty common flaws 
I mean, who among us hasn't ever lost their temper? Then he gets to the positive. He says, men who are hospitable. And I like this one, because I like guacamole and pigs in a blanket. And so, hey, it's like, hey, come over and let's eat some guacamole and some chips and salsa and some pigs in a blanket. But I think the hospitality Paul has in mind goes a little bit deeper than that. That what Paul's thinking about are, are those men who would be willing to open up their homes for a stranger, who sees somebody in need and welcomes them in. Probably in the first century, Paul's primarily thinking about strangers who are traveling and there's no room in the inn. Well, who's going to take them in? But the pastor. Or those who in the church have been persecuted and have lost their livelihood and can't afford to pay their rent. Where are they going to go? Paul says you need to be looking for a man who's willing to open up his home or find a way to show hospitality to him. He says you need to look for a man who loves what's good. Loving what is good is a virtue that was prized in the ancient world. It was like the prime virtue for a good Roman citizen. Was he the kind of guy who loves what is good? But I got to think about that, and I, I believe that God's leaders are supposed to be different in the world. And so I really struggled. Is Paul just baptizing what leadership looks like in the pagan community and bringing it into the church? And I think you know, of course he wouldn't. He would never do something like that. He sees such a clear distinction between the world and the church. I think what Paul means when he's talking about loving what is good, it's what he had in mind when he wrote to the Philippians that whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence or if anything's worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, I I aspire to be a person who loves what's good, who isn't doom and gloom, worrying about what's going on in the world and what are we going to do, but who finds the good in what God is doing, the positive. Where is God at work? I want to celebrate that. The world is the world, but what is God doing? I think that's what Paul is calling us to, to love what is good. He says they need to be sensible, prudent, thoughtful. To be sensible means to see the extremes in every choice and to, and to choose the appropriate action. That's what Paul's looking for in elders. And these last three, I think, go together. Men who are just, holy, self-controlled, just, devout, self-controlled, righteous, holy, self-controlled. I think the picture of a person Paul is painting as a man whose whole life is being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. When you look at this person, of course they're a human. They're not sinless. They're not perfect. But Titus, look for men whose lives reflect the truth of the gospel that they say they believe. Have they come to a knowledge of the truth that gets beyond all the right answers on the Bible trivia quiz? Are they living out godly lives? These are the kind of leaders the church needs. Listen, I think when it came time for Paul to give instructions to Titus, he couldn't have started at a better place. We have 2,000 years of history to examine. And all of us are living proof and have had experience ourselves that Christians often look for leaders who have the right answers, who have the right degrees, who have the right experience who have the right competencies. Can the guy preach? 
But do they have the right character? That's what Paul's looking for. How many times has the church's witness in the world been ruined by ungodliness in pastors? How many times? We've suffered it. We've experienced it. We know it. We do ourselves a great disservice by elevating competence over character. And Jesus told us to be aware of this. He said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruits cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles and in your name lead worship and in your name teach Sunday school class and in your name preach the gospel and in your name build churches? And they'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now the great danger for the church and for those who see themselves as leaders is to believe that what Jesus is really looking for are people who know how to run a church. People who know how to put a sermon together, be an administrator, make sure there's money there to do what the church needs to do. But Jesus is looking for people whose heart belong to Him. Men who have blameless character. And lastly and quickly, it's not just blameless character. We'll come back to this next week because I'm running out of time here. Paul says you also need to look for leaders who have biblical convictions. Biblical convictions. Because, of course, blameless character is first and primary. But we also have to get down to being a church. And so he says in verse 9, "...holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict." See, I think the key here for us is to see Paul's first phrase, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. We, we know this teaching. We saw it last week. He said the, t- the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. That's what he's all about. He wants to bring people a knowledge of the truth. And he anticipates that as he goes into different communities, communities on the island of Crete, and as the gospel spreads to places like Luling, Texas, There are going to be some people who take hold of it and receive it by faith and believe it and root their life into it so that it begins to bear fruit, producing in them blameless character. And when Titus finds those men, the second criteria he's supposed to ask is, do they hold fast to what Paul preached? Do they hold fast to the gospel? Are they theological innovators? Do they think outside the box? Paul says you need to look for men who hold fast to the faithful word. This is a common emphasis in the New Testament. I love the way the book of Jude says it, that we're supposed to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul knew back then, everybody knew, that the world was changing. The world is still changing. And people change. Viewpoints change. But according to Paul, elders need to be men who don't change. 
but who hold fast to what is true and has always been true, the essentials of the faith. Because it's important that the church has somebody that when the apostle is gone to his new mission field, or when his representative, Titus, gets the job done and leaves, that there's somebody there that people can go to with questions about the truth. What does it mean? How do I live this way? What do I, how does this apply to my family? There'll be people, Paul warns Timothy, who won't like sound teaching, but instead they'll find for themselves teachers who scratch their itching ears and say whatever they want to say. And there'll even be some men, and you know this as well as I do, who see a business opportunity in that. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Men who suppose that godliness is a great means of gain. Paul tells Titus, Look, find men who have a blameless character and have unwavering biblical convictions. Who when it gets hot, they don't bend. They don't cave to the pressures around them. But they're willing to stand up for what is right. They hold fast to what is true. And are able to exhort others to do the same. It's a temptation, I think, for leaders... I feel this a lot. It's to cater our message to what people want to hear. To maybe not put as sharp of a point on it as you could, just to let it land softly. But the temptation for people is to go someplace else if they don't like what the pastor has to say. To remove themselves from hearing it. But Titus is on the lookout for men who hold fast to the faithful word and are able to exhort other people in sound teaching. They're able to lead people where they don't want to go to a deeper knowledge of the truth. They're able to carefully navigate the difficulties of adjusting our lives to the Bible, which is never easy. They're able to lead us into deeper places of knowledge of God. That's what Paul's looking for. Men who have biblical convictions and are able to exhort others into sound teaching. And lastly, they're not afraid to rebuke those who contradict it. At the end of the day, what Titus is looking for are men who embody the teaching that Paul has given and are able to stand firm for it. Those are the kind of leaders we need. Leaders who are going to be a constant reminder of what God has called us all to do. Our leaders are called to model the lifestyle that Christ gave us. They're supposed to take it seriously, believe it with their whole hearts. It takes root in their life and they bear the fruit. And they're supposed to hold us accountable to it too. That's what we want out of a leader. That's the kind of leader God's people needs. And of course, there are so many places where this applies. I mean, there is a crisis of leadership in America, not just as a country, but in our families. Where are the dads of blameless character? Where are the dads with biblical conviction who are willing to lead their families? Where are they? They're hard to find these days. We need these kind of leaders in our Sunday school classes. Where are the men and women? Biblical conviction. Blameless moral character. Who take the gospel seriously and everybody knows it because it shines through 
every broken crack in the vessel that they are. Where are these people? We need blameless people with biblical convictions to lead our church. Y'all, post-COVID ministry is going to be different than pre-COVID ministry. The next 20 years of our church's life are not going to look like the last 20 years of our church's life. We probably all understand that, but it's true. Uh, used to, a church was successful. They could hire a senior pastor and a combo, worship pastor, youth pastor. That was success. Man, if you had two paid staff people and you could run a full church program, that was success. But what happens if it becomes a reality for a church that they can't afford a full-time pastor? Or no guy with an MDiv wants to move to where they are. They got too much student loan debt and they can't afford to take a pay cut to go to some little town. What happens if a church finds itself unable to secure the services of a professional minister? That church needs to pray that God would raise up leaders like He did on the island of Crete. If He could do it a bunch, among a bunch of liars, filthy animals, and gluttons, I think He could do it among the people of Luling, Texas, even if it is the toughest town in Texas. All right? There are people here who have blameless moral character and biblical convictions. He can do it. You know, there weren't a lot of MDiv, masters of divinity, running around the island of Crete. What Paul told Titus to look for were normal people, church people, who had taken the gospel message seriously and were being raised up, elevated, not by Titus as an ordaining bishop, but as a gift of God to his church. Godly leaders who would lead them to be the people of God in a broken world. So church, we need to pray that God would raise up leaders like this for our church. That He'd send us godly elders. Men who could serve alongside me to shepherd our congregation so no 32-year-old guy has to do this thing alone. We need more men who are willing to take on the burden of biblical conviction and biblical leadership. We need moms who are willing to say, you know what? I'm going to have a blameless character. I'm, I'm going to just live my life for Jesus. And I'm going to step up when I can. If my husband's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to read the Bible with my kids. Nobody wants to teach a Sunday school class? Well, I guess I'm going to have to do it. Nobody wants to step up when leaders are called upon and says, hey, anybody want to serve? Anybody want to be on a team? I'm going to do it. We need people from every group in our church to take this call upon themselves, to strive to be the kind of person who has a blameless character and biblical convictions. And I'd say to all y'all men, if I could just have a personal word with you. How come the American church is predominantly made up of women? Two-thirds to three-quarters the church-going people in America are women. Why is that? We've been talking about that some, Mr. Matthews. Maybe church is feminine. You know, we sing and talk about loving Jesus and all that. Maybe that's a little feminine for man's tastes. Maybe, I don't know, maybe men are meant to be outside and we invite them in to sit on pews for an hour and a half. Maybe that's why men don't come to church. 
But maybe it's because we're afraid. It's easier to gripe and complain about the church than it is to stick our neck out there and do something about it. I want y'all to do something about it. I want you to strive to be the kind of man who could be called upon in a place like a Crete. Would you fit the description? Titus, we're here today trying to find some men to lead the church here. Would he find anybody? Would you be selected? I think you ought to strive to be the kind of man who fits this bill. Man of blameless moral character. Man of biblical conviction. Not because you want to be a pastor, but because you want to live faithfully for God. So men, do it. Some of y'all need to take this burden on yourself. And some of y'all wives need to give your husband a swift kick in the rear end. And say, get it together, man. You don't match this. Maybe God wants you to do this. I don't know. Don't kick me too hard, Eric. Alright. But here's where it begins. It begins with a desire to be used by God in whatever way possible and to submit yourself wholeheartedly to Him. To say, God, make me what you want me. And I think that's a place we can all begin, regardless of our circumstances. That every one of us in some area of life or another, where it's the church or the business or the home, we want to be used by God, don't we? It begins by surrendering ourselves wholeheartedly to the love of Jesus. To know that He died to save broken people and to use them to extend His kingdom on earth and to glorify Himself. So this morning I'm praying for you in your home and in your business that you become the person God wants you to be so that He can use you, one of His people in a broken world. Will you all pray with me?